I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there, and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. How's it going, Chris? Long time no talk. Going very well, Nick. I am glad to be back on board here for this uh, this kind of, uh, I guess we'd call it a bonus episode or something off the uh, normal trajectory that, that we've been on, because... There's just so much stuff to talk about when we're talking about John Carpenter. Yeah, and uh, we have not yet gotten into his comic book work, and I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about his films, we've spent a lot of time talking about his composing, and this is a whole other angle of the Carpenter universe that I don't think I realized until we started talking about this episode and uh, thinking about what we're going to do for it, just how deep this rabbit hole actually goes. So we're going to be talking about the John Carpenter co-written comic book Joker, Year of the Villain, which came out in 2019. But there is a whole lot of other stuff. I mean, I knew there was uh, the Storm King comic books that he's been doing for a couple of years now. He's got a ton of other comics work, which just because I am not really a, a comic book guy for all intents and purposes. I like to read them when I get a chance to, but it's not a form of media that I follow. But there is a whole lot of John Carpenter stuff that I think we're going to need to get into at some point. Chris, have you heard of Old Man Jack? I have not heard of Old Man Jack. Well, I hadn't either, but we're going to have to talk about it on this show. Apparently, it's a uh, comic book miniseries about Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China in his older years, and I guess his adventures as uh, as Old Man Jack. And I don't know. I think that's really, really important to our overall discussion here. How did I not know that? How did I not know that? Uh, you know what? I should probably look it up. Maybe I, I just like had a fever dream about that or something. But I think it's real. I think it's a Boom Studios uh, comic book miniseries, and we're going to have to pick that up. But we thought we would at least just dip a toe in the water of Carpenter's comic book writing work. And again, we will eventually get to the Storm King stuff and, uh, and some other interesting things like Old Man Jack as well. Chris, are you keeping up with any comics lately or, uh, or not so much? No, I was uh, I collected comic books when I was a teenager, uh, a young teenager, and I specifically collected uh, Wolverine comic books. I still have to this day, I think the first 120 or so issues of Marvel Comics Wolverine. And then I also collected the uh, Marvel Comics Presents some spinoffs. I had like some Sabretooth comic books, Deadpool. Um, and, you know, obviously my friends collected them. Like one of my friends was a big fan of uh, the Uncanny X-Men. And so, you know, I, I mean, I have over 200 comic books in my house, but man, I haven't like opened one up in, I couldn't even tell you how long. I mean, it's been literally probably decades since I've actually read a comic book. I think that's correct. So, you know, and like you said before, this whole thing was kind of new to me, like like Storm King comics, John Carpenter has a whole like series of like Tales of Halloween, and uh, there's this one I saw called John Carpenter's Night Terrors, The Thirteen Horsemen, lots of stuff. So while I don't follow comic books in the in the present day, I certainly appreciate them, and reading this one kind of I mean it's not like I read this and I was like oh my god I'm gonna start reading comics again but I, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean but I I certainly um I appreciate it very much yeah I mean I I was uh probably around the same time like maybe middle school age I definitely read a lot of a lot of DC and a lot of Marvel but um particularly I was a big Batman fan and still am and 
now that it's sort of a thing where there's there, I feel like there's like comic shops everywhere now. I mean, it kind of went out of favor for a long time. And maybe it was like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, and comics being such an important influence on movies over the last couple decades where they've kind of made a little bit of a resurgence. So every time I see something like, oh, they're rebooting this particular Batman book, like I'm going to start reading that again. Or there's a new version of The Punisher or something. It's like, oh, I should check that out. And then I always get like one or two issues into it and I like it and then for whatever reason it's like when you start watching a tv show and you just like stop watching it for no reason you just uh you don't follow through so i can't keep up with comics uh unfortunately as as a person of my age but i kind of had the same experience as you did with this like it, it made me want to get back into them at least to some extent uh if nothing else definitely to read the rest of the carpenter material because i had a really really good time with joker year of the villain and i think it's maybe not the most important thing that he's ever done and it's not the thing that's as closely related to the movies as other things uh, that he's done but I think it kind of is a good jumping off point and it is just a single issue just a one-shot thing and I think there's some pretty interesting writing and some pretty interesting ideas in it that are uh, maybe in some ways like but in a lot of ways really not like uh, a lot of the other John Carpenter stuff that we've seen so looking forward to talking about that before we do we should probably get into recommendations it's gonna be a shorter episode than we normally do but it's been a while since we've talked and uh, and I want to know what's going on in your movie viewing world as always. <laughs> uh, if I had to select a movie that I thought kind of left an impression with me and uh, impressed me, because as we all know, in uh, in any genre, usually uh, sequels, it's, a, it's rare when you find a sequel that's as good or very rarely better than the original. But um, I actually was looking up... Some, it's getting to the point where I've seen so many horror movies that I really have to like struggle to find something that I haven't already seen. I mean, not that I know there's still thousands of movies out there I haven't seen, but sometimes it's hard to sort of break out of the wheelhouse of of movies that you're watching. And I found an article that the article was the premise of it was basically like, you know, sequels that that are way better than you would expect them to be sort of thing. And I decided to give the movie The Stranger's Pray at Night, a shot. Nick, have you seen the original The Strangers movie? I've seen and I love the original The Strangers movie, and yet I never got around to the sequel. Well, strap your seatbelt on, Nick, because <laughs> uh, The Strangers Pray at Night, which actually just came out in 2018, is excellent. And let me tell you, this movie had, first of all, Nick, as we always talk about, the greatest thing about it hour and 25 minutes long <laughs> just just a beautiful clean 80 85 minute film uh i cannot tell you nick when you watch this movie related to john carpenter whoever did the score for this movie it has a lot of piano in it and it is almost identical to the theme for the fog like they just changed a couple of notes and i could i was like there's no way that like this score wasn't influenced by that. But anyway, The Strangers 2 as opposed to just having, you know, a couple like like trapped in a house, it's still a home home invasion movie, but there's a whole family. So there's like a mother, father, son and daughter and in, instead of just being, you know, brutally terrorized by these people, some of them actually get a chance to fight back a little bit. And uh it's really well made. Another thing I loved about it, even at 85 minutes, I thought it was over like two or three times before it actually ended. So it had, uh, it it was just really unpredictable and creative, in my opinion. Now I know that critically, that's kind of a divided opinion, but I will tell you, it made me go back and watch the original Strangers, and I have to say, while that movie still holds up really well. I think I like two a little bit better, actually. That's interesting. I mean, I remember seeing the original Strangers, and it's not a great story, but it's a great idea. And, and there's so many home invasion movies, and I thought that one was just so much more powerful and so much scarier and really a lot more brutal than I expected it to be. It was a pretty mainstream movie, but it had that real like indie film or foreign film kind of just like edge to it. And I remember really, really liking it for that. And the sequel, basically everything I read about it said it was kind of more 
are the same. And I think I, I was planning on seeing it in the theater and something came up and we just didn't end up going. But yeah, that's, that's definitely one. It's on my Netflix queue. I still get Netflix DVDs, as I'm always proud to admit. And it's definitely on there somewhere. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah, and they do a lot with like, there's a scene at a, at a, at a community uh, trailer park swimming pool that's all lit up um, towards the end of the movie with, uh, I don't know the name of the song that's playing, but they also use the music in this movie very, very effectively, not just the score, but the soundtrack. They selected like a lot of 80s kind of like, you know, glam rock, techno sort of thing that I thought fit. Uh, it was a nice ju- juxtaposition against the like coldness of the movie, but I think uh, it was very creative. It, dude, there were at least three moments where my heart literally skipped just from like really well timed scares. And uh, if you've seen The Strangers and you like it, I am you're gonna get a a hard recommend for me. Fair enough. I will check that one out. I actually saw a horror movie this week. I kind of did the same thing where it it was just going back through things that I had always meant to see and never really got around to. And are you familiar with the Wrong Turn franchise? (laughs) I think I know I've seen the original and that's it, but I know there's like five of them and then isn't there like a reboot on top of that or something yeah i think there's six movies and then they just did just like this year in 2021 they just put out a reboot of the original and i had never seen any of them i knew like of them for a long time and i knew that they were just cranking them out left and right for many years a lot of them went direct to dvd and i realized i had never seen one of those movies and i just kind of wanted to see what all the hype was about so i finally saw the original 2000 two i think it was uh wrong turn with eliza dushku and jeremy sisto and i was kind of impressed by it i didn't think it was a great enough movie to spawn like an entire horror franchise the way like a a nightmare on elm street or a friday the 13th might but that first movie it is just sort of a, a very clean and well done you know teenagers being stalked in the woods by inbred hillbilly cannibal killers kind of movie and Mm-hmm. It's like a little bit Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not quite as brutal as that. I think it's very well directed for what it is. I mean, there's a couple of sequences. There's a bit where they're up in like a a, a watchtower and then they end up in the treetops. And it's a little bit more like it's less a slasher movie and more of a, a survival horror kind of movie. And the villains are scary. They're sort of not overdone. They're not made comedic. Uh, they, they are pretty imposing, pretty frightening. The gore is is much more brutal than I expected that to be also. So I had fun with that one. Um, do you remember it at all? Or was it that long ago? Or did you see it like in 2002? I saw it in 2002 or three or whenever it was it came out. In fact, at some point, I may have even like owned it on DVD. I, I have a, a, a vague recollection of that. Um, because back then, just, I mean, similarly to today, I was trying to watch as, as much horror films as I could, but I have a very, very vague recollection of it. Well, I would suggest you watch it again because it's, I will watch it again. <laughs> having seen a lot of movies like that over the years, I mean, this definitely, it's a cut above the acting's a little bit better. I thought the direction was very good. The cinematography was better and, you know, just kind of did what it needed to do. And again, it was one of those like 90 minute movies where it just sort of got in, got out. That's what I, I meant by saying it was just a, a very clean, very simple and direct and to the point kind of movie. Um, the other one I wanted to mention though, I watched a movie that was kind of John Carpenter adjacent and i'm still not entirely sure how i feel about it but do you know the story have you seen the thing prequel that came out a few years ago or uh, like it's like 2008 or something like that no but that's totally like a stay tuned for this show yeah i think we're going to talk about it at some point it was i'm not actually sure about the year hold on i should probably look that up i thought it was like more recent i thought it was 2000 11 or something like 2011 that. yeah that's what it was I, I was gonna say 14 it was either 8 or 14 so I had to split the difference there um, I saw that I think when it came out or not long after it came out and it was okay I mean I, it, it definitely didn't hold a candle to the original which I love so much but do you know the story of the special effects for that movie because I thought that was kind of an interesting thing uh, not a good thing but an interesting thing that happened with it where basically they made the entire movie with practical special effects with actual physical props and animatronics and puppets and things like that just like the original thing and the studio saw that cut of the movie and basically replaced 
all of those effects almost like pasted over them with CGI. So one of the things I really did not like about the Thing prequel is that most of the effects were CGI based and I kind of thought not that great and definitely nowhere near as good as the original. So the special effects people who did the original practical effects for the Thing remake were obviously very upset about having their work not be in the movie, so they kickstarted their own movie where they could showcase all the cool creature effects that they could do, and they actually were able to get enough money to put it together. So that movie came out in 2014, and it's called Harbinger Down. Have you seen that one? I've never even heard of it. Well, it was a movie that I probably would have not watched if I hadn't known that story. And I will tell you, it's not a very good movie uh, as far as direction, acting, um, scares, cinematography, production value. It's definitely a B-horror movie, but the creature effects in it are very, very good, and they are all practical. It's basically a, it's kind of a horror movie set at sea, which is cool. I love nautical stuff, where the crew of a ship and some scientists that are on board with them they find like a a downed russian spacecraft and they bring it aboard the ship and of course the cosmonaut that was aboard the spacecraft is still on it and he's dead and he's got some kind of alien entity inside him and um, the characters are so very stupid in this movie so they bring it on the ship they put it in the hold and our main character who's like a postdoc like a, a genius scientist actually sticks her head into this downed spacecraft where there's a dead body that's been there for like two decades or something like that. No gloves, no mask, just sticks her head in it. Doesn't get attacked at that point, but eventually what's in there comes out and starts um, transforming and attacking everyone on the ship in a very thing-like sort of way. And... You know, I thought it was just kind of a fun movie to watch because knowing where it came from, knowing how inspired they were by the thing, and knowing that that's kind of what they were going for with the practical effects, there definitely are some in it that are similar. It does get pretty gruesome and just sort of gloppy and slimy and just like hellish in the same way that the thing gets. I kind of wish it the rest of the movie, the script and everything had been better, but I think if you're a fan of the thing, it's at least worth checking out. And uh, and certainly the filmmakers, Alec Gillis is the writer director and, and he was a special effects creator. And he was one of the ones whose work was kind of just unceremoniously thrown out of that thing prequel just to see what those guys are capable of. I think it's kind of a cool movie for that. Very interesting. I had no idea. And yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> that thing prequel there. I mean, I have, I've never seen, I can't believe I've never seen it. It's like, why have I never watch that movie because I have seen like the um, some of the other Carpenter remakes like I've seen the newer Assault on Precinct 13 and also The Fog which will also be stay tuned I think those both came out in 2005 or something like that yeah somewhere but, around uh, there. yeah yeah but that's very interesting I mean that's I, I can't imagine how disappointing it would be to like work on all these effects for a movie and then just have a studio be like, Oh yeah, we're just scrapping all that for digital. Like what on earth do you think was the like thought process behind that? I got to feel like it was like a focus group thing or they just decided audiences now are so used to CGI special effects that they're just not going to accept those old fashioned. They'll, they'll think it looks like an 80s movie or something like that. But I mean, I, I got to tell you, every time I go back and watch movies from that era, like The Thing, like the original Nightmare on Elm Street that do have those great practical special effects, I always think that looks better than CGI. I mean, not that I, I'm sort of dissing CGI altogether. I mean, I think it's been used really well and in, in lots of different movies, but there's just something about practical effects, even practical effects that aren't perfect, even the ones that are, you know, maybe not the most realistic looking things. But when there's actual sort of slime and liquid and rubber and latex sort of coming together and, and making something that is halfway believable, I don't know. There's just something about that. Same thing with like stop motion animation. I really like uh, just because it has that sort of human touch to it. So mm -hmm. I guess the studio must have just decided that that people don't like the human touch anymore and they'd rather have a computer create their mayhem for them that's so sad but it's it's probably not a bad hypothesis as to why that happened and it's unfortunate but it's cool that they were able to get this thing made i mean I, I definitely wouldn't pay a lot of money to see it but i think it's streaming in a couple of different places and if you could watch it for free it's just worth checking out um what their efforts were 
Yeah, and we'll save this conversation for another time. Maybe I'll save these for next week. But I have continued uh, to my my journey watching all of the Wes Craven movies. And this week I knocked out Deadly Friend and Shocker. Boy, there's so much to say there, Nick. And uh, the, what reminded me was the practical effects that you mentioned. Because some of them are really bad. But uh, it's it's like you said, it's of the time. You know, you, it like it feels like analog or just more like authentic to that time period. So, uh, cause when they try to do digital on older movies like that, it just looks fucking even dumber. Yeah. I mean, anything sort of pre 1991 that's digital in a movie, forget <laughs> about it. And a lot of stuff through the rest of the nineties. I mean, there's movies from the late nineties where you just look at them and you're like, well, how did anyone think this looked good? Why didn't we just wait or do it some other way? But I guess that's another discussion for another day as well. Yeah. Let's save that for the next episode. Cause I really want to talk about deadly friend. I haven't seen shocker. So uh, that should be pretty interesting too, <laughs> but Coming back to this John Carpenter comic book, Year of the Villain, The Joker. So this is, I guess it's part of a larger, not a series, but like an event thing that DC Comics did, where basically the whole universe went to the villains for uh, for a time. Like, I, I, I'm not sure... I was kind of reading the backstory of all this and I didn't necessarily get it, but somehow Lex Luthor, the great Superman villain made it so that, uh, that basically all the villains of the DC universe could kind of take over the world for a while. And I'm not sure exactly how that came about. So in, in terms of what the, the comic books were, so there were lots of these little one shot titles where they showed kind of the ramifications of that. So your, your favorite DC universe villains just kind of, doing everything that they do without the intrusion of the heroes. Um, what's very interesting about, I think, the uh, this Joker book is that Batman doesn't appear in it, or he doesn't really appear in it. We don't see Bruce Wayne Batman. We don't see any of the good guys that we're familiar with, except in a really oddly placed Snickers ad. That <laughs> Did that throw you for a loop, by the way? Because it totally threw me. Oh, it totally threw me off. I thought it was part of the same story. I and did, then... too. Yeah, and then at the end of the two-page uh, little segment there, the uh, the dude is eating a Snickers bar, and then I, and then I realized, <laughs> and then I was like, oh okay, and and because I was like, man, this is super odd, especially because yeah, the relationship between Batman and the Joker, I just thought, oh, Batman's in this, that's crazy. Yeah, and it's it's just so tonally weird. I mean, this is a pretty dark, pretty graphic, gruesome. Um, it's a a very psychologically minded sort of story, and then like three or four pages into it, we get this very silly Batman versus the Riddler thing, and it's like the old school Batman costume, like his his suit is kind of blue like it was in the old days, like a, the Silver Age or whatever, and I thought maybe that was just a thing that Carpenter wanted to do because that's the Batman he grew up with, maybe. But yeah, it was just a Snickers ad. But aside from that, it is very dark and I think very consistent uh, in its tone, but there are no heroes in this story, really. It is kind of a villain tale, and, and I thought just a, a really interesting one. It runs about something like uh, like. 32 pages. I mean, it's it's a very self-contained story, um, but it does have kind of a, a definitive beginning, middle, and end, which I like because I can never keep up with comic book series. And I don't know. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to get into what the ending of it is, but I think we can at least just talk about the premise, right? Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's narrated by this young man who is kind of like a, a protege of the Joker. Am I supposed to know who this character is like in the DC Comics world? No, because I looked that up too. I mean, I, I thought maybe he had appeared before, but uh, basically it opens up with the Joker one more time busting out of Arkham Asylum. How many times has he done that over the years? Probably a million or so. Really sort of explosive opening. Yeah, and then we meet this character. He is the narrator and sort of the audience surrogate for the story. Joker calls him Six of Hearts. I guess he's got this, uh, he has a gang of 52, like, hench people and they're all named after a particular uh, number and suit in a deck of cards and this is six of hearts his real name is jeremy and he's a guy who's been locked up in arkham asylum for killing his father and so he has pretty severe mental illness uh and and his father was abusive and so he's not 
like, you know, just sort of a cold-blooded murderer, and I think that's established pretty early on. But yeah, the Joker kind of just takes this guy under his wing, and because Gotham City is being run by Bane rather than run by the law, the Joker's deal is like, well, I'm just going to be as fucking insane as I can possibly be and create as much mayhem and chaos as I can, just sort of rampage through the city. Um, a lot of the previews, like the, the promotional material for this, is basically like, if everyone in the whole world is bad at this point then Joker wants to be the baddest of the bad. And so basically this entire story is all about this like rampage that the Joker goes on where he steals a Batman costume from a convenience store. Actually, I, he might buy that costume. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the panel. Uh, but he gets like kind of a very cheap knockoff like Batman Halloween costume, gets a Robin costume for this character, Six of Hearts, and they are sort of uh, the the villain and his sidekick just rampaging through Gotham City, causing trouble, killing people, committing crimes, pouring like psychotropic stuff into the water supply, and just doing all kinds of crazy Joker shit. Yeah, the Joker looks insanely terrifying in some of the uh, images here. I think the we should comment on. I I really do appreciate the the pencils and the artwork. Yes, and uh, all the inks and everything. I mean, there's it's it's a beautiful beautiful looking comic book. Well worth the ten dollars or whatever it is on Amazon, in, in my opinion. Um, but just like some of the the close up pictures of him with his eyes and his you know, teeth and his insane smile, like, and he's, he kind of, it kind of looks like his mouth is like ripped open or something. It's really, really terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit like a, um, it's nothing like the Heath Ledger Joker, which I thought was kind of interesting. He's, um, he looks almost older here. Like his face is kind of wrinkly and a little bit decrepit. Yeah. His mouth is kind of like ripped open, um, kind of similar to the Heath Ledger Joker that we're all familiar with. But yeah, I, I thought so too. I mean, he's drawn in a particularly maniacal way here. And I think that really suits the story very well. Uh, Philip Tan is the artist that worked on this he also did the cover the cover is phenomenal the joker holding a skeleton with blood smeared on it it's kind of like a hamlet sort of pose which i really like and um yeah so it's basically the story of uh, of this character being taken under the wing of the joker and uh, embarking on this crime spree with him and sort of realizing pretty quickly and, and then just sticking around for a while that the joker is just as absolutely insane as the Joker could possibly be. And that was, I thought, a pretty interesting thing about it. Um, I wasn't sure, like, there's been so many different versions of this character and so many interpretations of the Joker, and I wasn't sure what a John Carpenter Joker would be like. And I almost thought, like, is he going to go, like, the anti-hero route with him? Like, is he going to be kind of a Napoleon Wilson or a Snake Plissken kind of character where, yes, he's a bad guy, but he's kind of sort of on the side of good, and yes, he's in it for himself but there's like some bigger evil that he's facing or something like that and really we don't get that at all um the joker is just the baddest of the bad uh, as the promotional material definitely singles him out to be it's so violent too like i was thinking to myself man i don't remember i mean wolverine was a pretty damn violent comic book you know but <laughs> well it, those claws it, it, how could you not be yeah, but this just seemed like so graphic. And and I think one thing that's like really disturbing about it <clears throat> and sort of it has a a uh, a sadness to it too because it's, you know, talking about the difference between being insane or being evil. Yes. You know, and and also just the uh the difficulty of having like mental illness to an extreme and the are the character throughout the story as he's going around and, you know, participating in, in some of the uh, terrorizing is kind of battling with whether or not he's like cool with what's going on. And like, it shows you the flashback of, you know, how he was uh, traumatized and, and, things of that nature and it's just like yeah apparently you know the joker's just kind of like manipulating him and kind of like grooming him in a way i felt like 
for sure. But also he's a father figure and this is a character who's looking yes. for a father and, and the Joker do, really does sort of take him under his wing and protects him where he doesn't really protect his other henchmen. And so it is, it's a creepy sort of dynamic that they have, but you can see, I mean, it's, it kind of opens up with him saying, I had no one when I went to Arkham, but then I had him. And so it's really this kind of um, almost familial relationship that, that he has with the Joker. But of course the Joker cares for no one and nothing and uh and really is i mean it, as brutal and violent and and just over the top insane as he's ever been i think in in a comic book that i've seen but it is like six of hearts is like a really weirdly sympathetic character i feel like and even though he's capable of doing some pretty horrible things yeah like you were saying i mean this all hinges on this philosophical sort of question right like what is the difference between being evil and just being crazy um because this character he says a number of times like i i can't tell what's real and what's not so are my actions am i responsible for my actions and you know there there's the same question that applies to the joker like just how how self-aware is he of of what he's doing and just what a, a chaotic impact he's having on the world? And I don't know. I wasn't expecting to have such deep thoughts reading a Joker comic book. I thought it was going to be a little bit more fun and a little bit sillier than it actually was. And I actually thought it ended up being kind of a poignant story. I also appreciated how there's an ad for uh, Joe Hill presents Hill House comics in here. I didn't know and anything about that either. <laughs> I saw the same I know. thing. It, it, and it's one of those things where, like, I've I think I've literally read everything that that Joe Hill's written, and that's another kind of temptation. I would be very curious to see. I'm sure they're excellent, but yeah, he's just another dude that's like fully, you know, in the in the comic book business. I mean, if I could say anything about this this comic book, it's like the more we learn about John Carpenter, this is kind of a like to me. It's so bizarre that you know. And I don't know anything about his Tales of a Halloween Night uh, Storm King comic series yet, but I think there's like six volumes of those. And based on the research I've done, I think you can buy those in either, you know, just normal like comic book style or you can, you know, spend like 25 bucks or so approximately per issue and get it in like graphic novel form. But the Joker, this this one particular comic book, it's almost like you have to see it to believe it, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's like I, I, I it's like I look at it, and it's it's similar to like the episode we did on like the retrospective Blu-ray. You know, it's like there's just all these one-off things that I just it just blows my mind that it's available, and I don't think that any of them are like particularly mainstream or or known about so i read it twice i i i enjoyed it very much and you know if if they did another one i'd, I'd probably get that one too and if anything it has kind of piqued my curiosity a little bit to see what his tales of a halloween night uh, comics are like yeah, I think I want to check those out, too. I mean, what impressed me about this is that it made me think back, like, of course, as we've done on the show since the beginning. I mean, anytime we talk about a John Carpenter project, we try to link it back to the other stuff that he's done. And this is a collaboration, uh, by the way. The writer, the co-writer with him is a guy named Anthony Birch. Uh, he is known for the Borderlands video game series, which I'm somewhat familiar with. I've never actually played any of them, but I've seen clips. I know kind of what their sense of humor is and, uh, and basically what the story is. Is with those and it's kind of an interesting collaboration they had worked together before and I was reading an interview with Carpenter he, he was talking to sci-fi.com when this came out in 2019 and basically just kind of stumbled into it. Um, it it's another thing that shows that John Carpenter is just kind of game for anything he's a guy that is I think he's just easy to work with and I think he is just up for a lot of things and um, he mentioned in that interview that he did grow up on comic books. He was a Batman fan. Um, he actually said he really liked the Scrooge McDuck comics that were, you know, like the Carl Barks, like the real early Scrooge McDuck, Donald Duck, which were, I, I read a few of those when I was a kid, and they weren't just sort of silly kids cartoon comics, but they had like kind of ongoing stories and kind of more mature storytelling, even though they were about like familiar Disney cartoon characters. So maybe that's another place where John Carpenter got some of his scores. Uh, storytelling sense from 
But um, he said that uh, that the Joker was just an interesting character for him to write because I think the phrase that he uses, he's just a sick piece of shit. And he did not want to create a sympathetic Joker. He wanted to create a Joker that was frightening and, uh, and, and someone that you'd be really afraid of. But it kind of made me think, getting back to this point about the rest of his filmography, like... John Carpenter doesn't really write these over-the-top villains, right? I mean, am I missing something? I mean, think about the villains in Carpenter movies. A lot of times it's more of a force than a person. Um, I think Michael Myers sort of qualifies for that. Obviously, The Thing qualifies for that. You've got Assault in Precinct 13, where it's this sort of faceless street gang. We do see a few of them kind of singled out in the beginning, so we know who the real baddie bad guys are, but... You know, none of them like have any dialogue, really. They they don't do sort of the the theatrical things that the Joker does. Like, Chris, I mean, you've seen all of Carpenter's movies. I've seen all of them except for like the last two. But are there Joker like villains anywhere in the Carpenter universe that I'm missing out on or, or just like sort of talkative, um, you know, like a Hans Gruber type villain where he is <laughs> as interesting a character as the heroes are? There aren't any, right? No, there's really not. And, you know, it's like, because think about it. Prince of Darkness, you've got Liquid Satan. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. And, and, and Alice Cooper. Um, you know, yeah, the, like in They Live, the enemy is like just, you know, these uh, <laughs> it's, it's capitalism. aliens. Yeah, capitalism. <laughs> um, I mean, Big Trouble in Little China's uh, villain, like Lopan and stuff Lopan's, like that. They, that's the only one that kind of like stuck in my mind. Like he's about as close as we get in the Carpenter universe to like just one of those comic booky kind of villains that is just a bigger talker than he is, uh, you know, like someone who has a lot of personality as a villain. He's not just scary, but he's also sort of flamboyant and over the top. I, I guess the Escape movies kind of have that, but I don't know. I, I don't really see those as like kind of a protagonist antagonist kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's not like I I mean Isaac Hayes, I guess. And, uh, and Cuervo Jones, York, yeah. Cuervo Jones, dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cuervo <laughs> Jones and the Joker have so much in common. <laughs> the Joker um, would fuck up Cuervo Jones. <laughs> like literally any Joker. I think going back to the sixties Batman, the Caesar Romero Joker, he would fuck up Cuervo Jones. He'd fuck him up and then take his beret and wear it and laugh maniacally. <laughs> yeah. And make him um, play basketball for his life. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think you're right. There's nothing um there's nothing I could think of. I mean I mean, let's just go through it. Like in the mouth of madness, that's Sutter like, Kane has has some Joker like tendencies. Village of the Damned is just all those stupid kids. <laughs> um so the it's, Joker it's not... probably fucked them up too. Oh, dude, totally. I think it's it's funny. I think one could actually make the argument that if you were to try to come up with any villain in Carpenter's movies that is the most similar to the Joker, I mean, I guess it's Michael Myers as just far as, you know, a straight evil character. Yeah, but he doesn't talk. Michael Myers is just, he's so singular of purpose and you kind of always know. I mean, that's what fascinates me about the Joker, right? Is that he's yeah. like he seems to be enough in control and he really just sort of enjoys what he does. And I never get that sense out of Michael Myers. It's just like kill, kill, kill. Like, you know, does Michael Myers hate exactly? I'm not even sure. I think he's just really good at, at murdering people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that, that Michael Myers really... That's what I think is so rad about him is that he's just a total enigma. Well, you know? Yeah, until the and sequels come along and blow that uh, out of the water. Yeah, yeah, and then Rob Zombie, you know, well, that's a whole. <laughs> and Rob Zombie gives him a full backstory for <laughs> like sixty percent of the movie. That's another story for another day. But yeah, I mean, I guess it probably was really fun for John Carpenter to take on this character who just is so interesting and so over the top, and like I said, just kind of theatrical and flamboyant, and he really does. I mean, it's it's brilliant, I think, the device of putting the Joker in a Batman costume and having him kind of enact this, like, vigilante thing where he just, like, there's a, a scene in this. I don't want to spoil too much, but he just sees a guy walking his dog on the street, and he's like, it's a villain. Let's murder him. So they do. And then they kill yep. the dog, too. Well, he he it's... kills the dog. It's not not uh, Six of Hearts. It's the Joker that, that commits all the real violence. Yeah, it's totally random. Um, I, I do want to mention one thing. I misspoke before because I'm kind of learning as we go here about the uh, John Carpenter's Tales for a Halloween Night series. I guess what they're, they're compilations of short stories. So 
like it, in any particular volume, there's going to be 12 different tales all told by different authors. And John Carpenter usually just has one of those stories written by himself. So you can either buy like the full version that has all the stories, or if you want to, you can just buy like they've made singular versions that just have his stories in them as well. Okay. I mean, I think if they're all sort of in the same vein, then I'd probably want to read all of it uh, alongside Carpenter. It might be actually interesting to take a look at those and just kind of make some comparisons. I don't know who the other authors are, but I'm assuming they're they're probably pretty big names in horror. Yeah, I'd go full I'd go full bore with it as well. I don't recognize any of the names as far as the other creators that I'm looking at here. But it they do look intriguing, man. Like it's and yeah, a, a, according to the website, there are 6 Volumes. Now, outside of Tales for a Halloween Night and The Joker, what else do we have? Does Carpenter have any other comic book? Well, there's uh, there's Old Man Jack, as I've said, oh, yes. and, and I'm yep. pretty excited about that. There's also, he has another series. Hold on just a second. Yeah, because now I'm looking at the homepage of Storm King Comics, right? And it says, available now. Yeah, he's got this one called Night Terrors, and he has another one called The Grimm's Town Terror. Uh, tales rise of the candy creeper oh my oh my <laughs> well, god there's Nick, a you uh, have to see this there's a whole like young young kids series too that that's um i believe it's called storm kids and it's he he talked about it as like a gateway drug into horror for a little kid so it's no, kind that's of what like i'm a, talking about like a it's goosebumps st- kind of thing i guess john carpenter's storm kids the Grimstown terror tales rise of the candy creeper <laughs> that's freaking awesome I can't wait till my daughter is old enough to read those. I don't know what the age limit is there, and she's not even one yet. But oh boy, am I going to buy her that series? Would you Would you buy a digital copy of a comic book, or do you need to have the physical thing? I think I need to have the physical thing. I'm I'm mostly the same way. I think I've maybe read one book on like a Kindle, and I just didn't enjoy that at all. So uh, no, and and particularly with comic books, I do. I sort of like the feel of it. You know, I like the way things are laid out on the page, and I mean they've they've done some incredible stuff. I have seen some that way, and I like uh, you know some of them even have like movement and stuff in them, but. No, I don't think I could read a digital comic book. I think I would have to get a hard copy. I'm in the same boat because it's like I'm still old school, man, with like like I I will go to it was funny, like when the pandemic first kicked off, I went to Barnes and Noble and bought like a stack of books, like all at once you know, and I mean I'm I'm that uh I'm that nerdy. Like I like the way the pages smell and feel and stuff like that. And oh for sure. And I like to have it on my shelf. You know, I like when people come yep. into my house, they know of all the stuff that I have read and, and you know, I can loan them out and things like that. And yeah, there's there's something definitely to be said for physical media, at least that kind of physical media. Um I wanted to mention one more thing in this Joker comic book because it was hmm. a, a character that I had never seen before and I thought he was made up, but it turns out he has appeared in lots of of other Batman stories. Were you familiar with the Condiment King? No, no, not at all. <laughs> so there's a scene in this where Joker and uh, Six of Hearts, they're in a convenience store that gets held up by this character called the Condiment King. And he is like a super villain that has a condiment gun. So I had to go deep down this rabbit hole and uh, on dcfandom.com, there's like a whole wiki about this guy. So uh, I just really liked this line about his weapon, the condiment gun. It says, Condiment King's gun squirts a variety of sauces, including ketchup, mustard, and relish. It does not squirt them at high enough pressure to actually cause anyone harm, but it can cause nasty fabric stains. <laughs> Dude, this Holmes says, the Condiment King says in this com. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> there's a slide where he says, if I... Mayo introduce myself. <laughs> I am the vinaigrette of violence, yes. the sriracha of sin. I am, and then Joker says, Condiment King. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess what that's just hell? a corner of the Batman rogues gallery that I'm not familiar with. Uh, his real name actually is Mitchell Mayo, so take that for what it's worth. Um, it is like, 
it's a pretty serious story overall. And I do think it, it's really sort of, it's like a psychological thriller or like a, a psychological drama um, where the way this plays out. And it has, I thought, a very, very satisfying ending. But occasionally it does tip over into humor. And, and particularly in this scene, I had never seen that character before. Again, must have been really fun to write. I could probably do condiment puns all day if somebody hired me to, if somebody paid me good money to do that. So yeah, just, uh, just another interesting thing in this book that I thought was kind of fun added to it. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Condiment King because I had no, I it <laughs> didn't have, I didn't know what the hell was going on. This guy's in there, you know, I, I had no clue, but that's, <laughs> you know, I forgot how abrupt comics can be sometimes, you know, and like, it's not any fault of the writing or the authors, but things can just change very quickly. It is a very, very fast paced style. And I think that's something that uh, just me being someone who watches a lot of movies and reads a lot of screenplays, um, you know, not everything is explained quite as, as intuitively as they are in films and in scripts. And this does, I mean, it covers a lot of ground in, in whatever it is, 32 pages. It does have, like I said, a beginning, middle and end and a, a pretty distinctive and definitive character arc to it. And I thought a, a very satisfying ending, but, yeah, I mean, it does kind of zip from one thing to another thing. And, um, you know, sometimes even in between panels, there's like stuff that's happening that we don't actually get to see. And, and we kind of, you know, it's almost like jump cutting to the next thing a little bit. They also, um, I really kind of like the way they lay out the pages here. A lot of the panels are broken up, not just with lines, but like with uh, with the sound effect of the Joker going, ha, 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 ha. Like that's the line that goes around the frame. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 all pretty nifty. Um, and again, if anything, this is a sort of see it to believe it thing for I, I mean, I don't think unless you're into comic books and aren't aware of it or if you're just like a major John Carpenter nerd like we are. I mean, I, I would definitely say check it out. Uh, but otherwise, this is just another random project that he, you know, was involved with. And I think it's great. Yeah, it definitely made me want to get deeper into his his comic book. What do you call it? Bibliography, I guess. I was going to call it a filmography, but it definitely <laughs> isn't. But, uh, but yeah, I want to delve deeper. And uh, I thought, like I said, I think this is a good place to start. And I just love a good Joker story. Um, Chris, who's your favorite Joker while we're on the subject? Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, it's tough, man. I, I mean, it's between Nicholson and Ledger, right? I mean... Well, what about Joaquin Phoenix? Oh, yeah. That was a really tremendous performance, too. This came out right about the same time as that movie, I think. It's uh, fall 2019, so that would have been in theaters when this comic book dropped. Yeah, fuck it. I'm going Heath Ledger. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Heath Ledger, too. Um, I think there's been a lot of great ones, though. Um, I, I, of course, enjoy Jack Nicholson. I think anybody our age who, at a very young age, saw that first Tim Burton Batman movie was a big fan of uh, of Jack Nicholson. Is, was Dude, it Jack, Jack Napier? That movie scared the hell out of me. Was <laughs> yeah, he was pretty and I, and I I watched it over and over and over again. That was like... that That and, like... The, that first like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, you know, <laughs> I remember having those on VHS and just watching them over and over and over again. But um, yeah, those are pretty badass comic book movies. I will say I saw the Tim Burton Batman like as an adult, like not too long, maybe oh. 10 years ago or something like that. And it is much, much cheesier and, and campier and more over the top than I remember. Like when I was a kid, I took it very seriously. Mm hmm. I'm sure I was like seven or eight years old or something. So. And that's why, like, The Dark Knight is just such a masterpiece of a movie that, you know, I think that kind of helps. And I really like Christian Bale's Batman. Dude, that whole, the, all those Batman movies, when they got into Returns and Forever and uh, Batman and Robin, I was just so, I just lost all interest in Batman movies. And I, uh, actually, Returns was pretty good, but I... A friend of mine, when Begins came out, like convinced me. He's like, dude, you have to watch this movie. And I, I reluctantly agreed to watch it. And I was like blown away. <laughs> I was like, this kicks ass. So I always liked Christian Bale as a, 
as Bruce Wayne. So. Yeah, for sure. I like that series a lot too. And I, I hope, I mean, I know we've had Ben Affleck as Batman for a while and supposedly that one with Robert Pattinson is coming out soon. And I don't know. I, I mean, don't I, I don't know that we'll ever see a different Joker after Joaquin Phoenix and Heath Ledger. Um, but I, I guess maybe 20 years down the line or something, I kind of do want to see just another straight up Batman versus Joker story with whoever's playing them at that time. And, uh, and that can be the one for the next generation. But it is, I mean, I, I just, I sort of love this character. I mean, aside from maybe the Jared Leto one, which we don't have to get into that, really enjoyed the, the Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix performance in that movie and one of the last movies I saw in a theater probably. So it'll always have that place in my heart as well. But yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably go with Heath, Heath Ledger as well as my favorite Joker because there's just so much more, I don't want to say reality to that version of the Joker, but there's... I don't know, nuance, I guess you could maybe call it, even though he's he's pretty crazy throughout the whole movie. Um, that shot that where he's walking out of the hospital in the nurse uniform and it's just blowing up behind him and there's that one explosion that he's not expecting and he just kind of reacts to it. I love that so much. I mean, that might be my favorite shot in that movie. <laughs> it's just so like silly and funny and, and right in the middle of something so graphic and harrowing. Um, always just kind of gets me. He was uh, He was pretty incredible in that role. Haven't seen it in years. Just talking about it makes me kind of want to watch it. Yeah, but. yeah, for sure. Anyway, um, any final thoughts on Joker Year of the Villain? No, let's let's let the audience know what we are doing next. Nick, what are we doing next? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's time to venture into the Wild West of John Carpenter's Vampires, a movie that I have not seen since 1998. That's incredible, and I, I want to say that... Uh, as our uh, dedicated listeners know, the 90s have not been kind to, to John Carpenter overall as far as, uh, you know, box office or uh, critical acclaim. But uh, they are already coming to a fast close because after John Carpenter's Vampires, his next film wouldn't be until 2001, which is John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. One thing I didn't know until we started this project and I was doing research, and I might try to talk you into it just so we can have a knee slapper of an episode, but uh, there was a sequel to this made. What is it? Los Muertos? Los Muertos. <laughs> Dude, John Bon Jovi's the star of that movie. Of course I'll watch that. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So maybe <laughs> My childhood maybe... hero, John Bon Jovi. Uh, yes, I will watch it. I'm sold. Yeah, so maybe before we do Ghosts of Mars, we'll actually do Vampires 2, because if I'm correct, I think Carpenter was a producer on the, on the project, so it's not like he didn't have anything to do with it at all. I will say, uh, just because we started doing this project, I did recently pick up the Blu-ray for Vampires, and... Um, I've watched it. It's it's a wild ride, man. I cannot wait to see what uh, you think. And another reason why uh, Vampires Los Muertos would be worthy of a Precinct 13 episode is because, Nick, do you remember who directed that movie? Is it Tommy Lee Wallace? It is freaking Tommy Lee Wallace. Oh, well, talk about Carpenter adjacent. You can't get much more adjacent than that. Sandy King and John Carpenter serve as executive producers on that as well. Oh, so at least he put up some money for it, if not uh, a lot of creative input. <laughs> put up some money for it. <laughs> Tommy Lee Wallace is a pretty good director, so uh, so yeah, I'm interested. But um, we will get to that. I'm excited to see Vampires again, and I'm excited to get into more of the comic book work of John Carpenter. Um, I'm, I'm glad I bought it, a copy of this, and I definitely will read it again. So we would love to hear from our listeners. Of course, we always love your feedback and, uh, and love to get emails and messages from you. If there is any corner of the John Carpenter comic book world that we haven't talked about or that you think we should definitely talk about on the show, let us know. Uh, it is kind of a, a new facet of his career that we're just starting to get into. So if you would like to get a hold of us by email, we are at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at 13precinct, facebook.com slash one three precinct and our website where you can download all of our episodes subscribe to the show and uh hopefully leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider of choice it's precinct13.simplecast.com so with that it's time to uh to fire up our old 1998 wayback machine and <laughs> i don't know man i saw it in the theater when i was in high school and i thought it was good but 
Anyway, we will be back to talk vampires in two weeks on FreeSync 13. Thank you.